If you can get an Uber car on your phone in four minutes, why can't you get an accurate quote on fabric in less than five weeks? Right. <laughs> right. That makes no sense. Yeah. From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Michael Phillips, the president of real estate development firm Jamestown. Six years ago, Michael's company purchased the Boston Design Center and began a long-term project to revitalize the space by turning it into a mixed-use complex. Now the building combines trade-only showrooms with retail shops, corporate offices, cafes, and restaurants. I spoke with Michael about how the industry needs to start talking to consumers, why showrooms should consider nighttime hours, and how the BDC isn't just a design center, it's a laboratory. This week's podcast is sponsored by Cherish, interior designer's beloved source for chic, one-of-a-kind furniture, art, and decor. If you're a design pro and not in their trade program, you should be. Starting now, designers earn $75 cash for every $5,000 they spend on Cherish, plus access to net pricing and specialized live customer service. Sign up at Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com backslash trade. I wanted to give listeners some insight into a little bit of your background. You're very passionate about design, which is sometimes unusual for someone in sort of the real estate investment business. Right. But that's very core to who you are. And I, and I wonder if you could share with us what informed that and, and how that developed for you. I started my career in the retail business in the early 90s with home furnishings and accessories. So that sort of is where that passion started, but certainly continued with a manufacturing business, which sold to about 700 accounts in uh, five countries. We opened up with Taka Shamaya with, with Corky uh, Tyler. It was the buyer oh. there. We, we sold to, to Chelsea Passage with Phyllis Pressman. So, you know, my indoctrination into certainly the world of home started with some very incredibly elevated sensibilities of the people that we did business with. And we, we still bemoan the fact that Taco Shamaya is no longer right. with us. Yeah. One of the most extraordinary, right? right? Yeah. I mean, amazing. Yeah. And, yes. and even a lot of the stores that were downtown at the time, Wolfman Gold and Good with, with Perry Wolfman doing those incredible whites in China. And yeah. you know, that whole moment informed my sensibility. And so I started a real estate enterprise in my 20s, early, um, really as an answer to the fact that I needed production space for my manufacturing business. And what were you manufacturing at the time? Dinnerware and accessories. Okay. And we opened the business with Elizabeth Taylor. I guess Ware Magazine had just uh, had just started then. And Elizabeth Taylor put our footed candle uh, as her favorite gift, uh, holiday gift of 1991, maybe. And we were in Barney's in all 13 stores at their oh. peak. I mean, it was, it was, it was a heady time yes. for a small business. And yes. so that essentially is how uh, the business started. And, and the real estate side of the business came out of that. Mm. And so fast forward 30 years, and it's quite a large enterprise. And of course, the Boston Design Center was uh, an exciting 
addition given our love for all of that. So I would call myself a frustrated home decorator. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and now you don't have to be frustrated because you have a design center all to yourself. Exactly. Yes. Well, so how did the Boston Design Center sort of first show up on your your radar and how did it it appear as a, a worthwhile project for you to take on? My partner and I have a house in Maine, and we first, you know, sort of found the Boston Design Center as part of that uh, renovation project. Okay. Uh, And that was 20 plus years ago. And then through sort of investing in other things, we were the largest landlord on Newberry Street in Boston and a variety of things. Um, This building, which was an original sort of army terminal from 1910, which is a third of a mile long, and the Boston Design Center is housed in it. Mm. And we had the opportunity to to buy five sixths of the building, which was about a million four hundred thousand square feet, and the Boston Design Center occupied five hundred thousand feet of that. Got it. Okay. And so that that was maybe five years ago now, mm-hmm. and it was exciting, right? I mean, to be able to to be a stakeholder in the um, home decor space. Uh, and and also the corporate environment space, because the Boston Design Center is a little unique in that it houses both corporate furnishings and ho- hospitality and uh, healthcare showrooms, as well as home decor showrooms. So that's yes. been nice to toggle both sides of that industry. Right. And so you came in and you and you very graciously sort of came and spoke to the trade and the and the industry. You spoke at a at a DFA meeting sure. and, and said uh, you've got lots of exciting ideas and and that you really want to sort of revitalize the the Boston Design Center and and the properties around it. What was your notion at the at the time when you first bought the property? Well, I think that that building had been sort of neglected by the years of Vernado kind of downsizing the group of design centers they bought, which included mm. the the Chicago uh, merchandise Smart. mart. Yeah. And it hadn't really had an owner with an appreciation for what that industry does, but also was at the face of a reshaping of the industry. Uh, a lot of mergers, a lot of downsizing the increasing pressure, downward pressure on in-store sales for our in-showroom custom orders for what was emerging as collaborations with designers and mail order or, or commercial uh, consumer products. And so I think what we saw, and I think what has proven out is that with a little bit of elbow grease and some attention, we could create something that was dynamic and serve the New England community. And I think it, it has accomplished that. I think the industry continues to get smaller, mm-hmm. which is, um, I think, an output of, of the disintermediation in that space. I mean, you can look at what First Dibs has done to antique stores. Yeah. Now, the antique dealers are still there. They right. just happen to live in upstate New York or in the country, <laughs> and they're not, they're not operating yeah. storefronts right. the, the way they used to. Yeah. So I think the design center is an interesting laboratory for all of those sort of trends that are evolving. It's a great word to sort of describe it, this laboratory. You, you, you feel as if we're at a time where there's a need for experimentation and, and, and a willingness to, to be open to some of the trends that are impacting the, the, the retail environment, but, but even just the, the very cityscape of, of some of these major cities where you also have in, investments in. Indeed. I mean, I think this is the, the interesting moment if you just... If we sort of widen the lens to the to to the greater world we're living in, there's a shift in all kinds of habits and consumers in 
the way we look at the way companies are being led around environmental issues, any mm. of these things. And, and I think we have a sort of tale of two consumers. We have the sub 40 year old millennial who has a very different way they process and consider what's valuable to them. And we have the sort of the, the 40 and older consumer who has benefited from one transactional system but now that's shifting and they're trying to figure out where they inhabit the space there. And the companies that serve them are looking at all the alternatives around that. So you have showrooms that are, are ardently non-consumer right. and you have showrooms that are, that are dealing with it around the edges. You have multi-line rep groups that have carried a lot of legacy overhead that are trying to figure out how they right size in this culture. You have some companies that have gone from multi-line representation to having their own shingle and done very well, you know, because they have, they're making more of a, of a connection with a direct consumer. And those companies, I would say as a theme, those companies that are doing well out on their own and out of a multi-line experience tend to have coupled that with a very robust social media drive and a connection to their consumer. And then on the other hand, you have legacy fabric houses and showrooms that have have either merged or gone out of business or in reorganization as part of where they figure out where they fit. Right. I think it's an interesting time. So laboratory is is a right is is the correct word, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a great way to describe it. And when I think about so as you know, I just recently got a a wonderful tour of the Boston Design sure. Center and and the whole innovation and and design space and it and it's really a remarkable space on a on a host of levels. But I'm curious about so your ground floor tenants like a like a Stark, like a Waterworks, uh, I know Circa Lighting is is coming in. Sure, yep. Would those be good examples of companies that are perhaps farther along in figuring out how to work with a consumer and how to how to manage that that business. And, and it's at the expectation of even being on the ground floor. There. Yeah, it seems that way. I think what you're seeing and what our goal was, was to do the opposite of the trend, which is the trend has been much higher ground floor rents, making it punitive for, for trade only businesses. Yeah. We wanted to create an environment that was very friendly to that. And we wanted to experiment with companies that that were open to that. So Stark has had a consumer has a consumer for, focused portion of their business. They've also created partnerships in the digital space for distribution of their products. And so that lineup of Waterworks, which has always sort of been a retail company, and Circle Lighting, which is a bridge company, mm-hmm. um, Genesis C, Stark, that has been an interesting driver of pedestrian interface and consumer interface, while also a portal to the upper floors that have a gradation of their interest in engaging with the consumer. Yeah. We're taking a quick break to give you the insider scoop on the Cherish Trade Program. Join the Cherish Trade Program today and you'll receive new hotshot perks. Earn $75 cash for every $5,000 you spend on the site and access to a trade-only customer service hotline and snappy new project management tools to make your life even easier. And let's not forget the trade program's ongoing key benefits, including net pricing up to 30% off and 48-hour hold capabilities. To get in on the fun today, visit cherish.com backslash trade. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com backslash trade. And now, back to the show. 
you know, and you and you mentioned about sort of the some of these legacy companies and the the challenge that many of these multi-line showrooms mm-hmm. have is 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 rent in these design centers, and they often when they sit down with us, they they tell us that you know, the challenge is their margin isn't expanding. They're they're getting twenty five percent or they're getting thirty percent, right? And and that's it, and and that's not expanding, but their but their rent is sort of forever increasing, and that's becoming more and more challenging for them. And they've had to scale back on square footage, as you were saying. Many of them have had to sort of right size. Right. One thing I that's important to touch on is customer service. And I think, you know, we've seen this in 25 years that the customer service in the multi-line showrooms has gone down. And if we're honest, in an industry and in a, in a marketplace where customer service has become far more efficient and lead times have become far more efficient and accuracy of information has become more accurate, the showrooms have become less so. Mm. And so it's regular for clients to get a memo and a, and a yardage quote on availability of fabric and only to find out four weeks later after the order is placed that in fact there isn't enough yardage and they're going to have to reprint or you're going to have two different dye lots. Well, that's a back-end inventory management issue. And it's a problem with the professionalism and training of the staff. Mm -hmm. And I don't think this is a universal issue, Mm -hmm. but customer service is important. And I would say that the companies that are excelling in that space are doing very well. And I don't think it's solely about margin. I don't think it's about rent. I think it's about whether you're really paying attention to how the world is evolving. If you can get an Uber car on your phone in four minutes, why can't you get an accurate quote on fabric in less than five weeks? (laughs) Right. (laughs) That makes no sense. Yeah. And I I honestly can't accept the answer that this is a bespoke custom product. That's something I think the industry is hiding behind and not actually sort of addressing. And you know, and you and I have talked in the past about how the design industry in general did itself no favors with some of the sort of secretive way that they held on to resources or or, or just didn't share information perhaps as well as they as they could have, and and now and and transparency is suddenly this very overused word in our culture today, but but transparency turns out to to really be important to a lot of the consumers that want to interact with these with these businesses. Yeah, today. not only transparency, I think provenance and source and understanding the relationship with the maker. If you're in an industry that's so handmade, why do we disconnect the consumer from the maker mm. as a byproduct of protecting margins versus saying this is the person who shears the lamb and weaves the fabric and dyes the fabric and creates the fabric that you use as a component of something that's going in your home. And we want you to understand that and be connected to that. And that's why you're paying for it. It's why you're waiting for it. And it doesn't become lost in the translation, which in the new workforce, in the new consumer base, Mm. that's paramount. Having some additional return from some mission-based protocol is what drives people to purchase and to, and to take things into their lives. And so if we are disconnecting people from that inadvertently, we need to pay attention to that. Well, you spoke early on when you came to, to speak to the design trade about the need 
for a lot of these companies to just get better at high-end consumer marketing right. in general, right? right. That yeah. this was clearly a challenge for our industry and it hasn't been made any easier today by how we find the media landscape. Mag- many of the magazines that were very influential right. have, have gone away or, or don't have the same sort of impact today. And how do these companies better tell their, their story, better, better tell the, the provenance of the products that they're selling? Well, what's interesting is that the power of an Instagram image today by somebody who has their own cross-sector follower base is tremendous. And so what companies are doing, and some of it's really working, is they're creating partnerships with not just designers, but with also people who are influencers in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that disintermediation of information You know, I'm addicted to Instagram. I'm 100% addicted to Instagram. (laughs) I love it. I buy products and services from it. And to me, the idea that we're not able to connect to a consumer seems questionable to me. Hmm. And it's more about the way we're evolving in that space and what's interesting about the stories we're telling or we're not telling stories, Hmm. you know? How do I do that in the design industry when there's so many rich stories to be told that we could talk about that all day long? But I think that I think that that's an opportunity. Well, I think it is an opportunity and I think it's a tremendous challenge because the the, the challenge for many of these companies is that the RHs of the world are, are, are telling their own story instead and they're doing and really well. Exactly. And, you know, I made the mistake of saying <laughs> to somebody who would want to live in an RH home, you know, fully RH home and two executives I was talking to raised their hands and said, our houses are a hundred percent RH. Exactly. And so we can turn our nose up at that. But the reality is Gary Friedman and his team, which now includes Peter Salek and, <laughs> and, and, and exactly. a variety of people and yes. others as well. And now includes Warren Buffett yeah, on the exactly. team as well. Are all doing a very good job at telling those stories. And, yeah. and those stories are many and varied and include restaurants and include hospitality. And, and I think that that our industry started that. Well, exactly. And so, and so we, and, and we shouldn't give it away. Can we take it back? Because one of the things that RH has done so effectively is they have co-opted some of the very artisans that were in, let's use Holly Hunt for an example. Right. Or Axel Vervoort. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes. Yeah. They have co-opted right. that, that some of those to the trade artisans and said, no, no, now you can get them right here. 100%. Right? Yeah. And yeah. how, how do we how do we take that back or how do we stand up to a force as strong as that? I think it's it can be incremental and I think it can be individual. I mean, certainly I think the way we've addressed it is we have our own, you know, ID Boston magazine where we're producing original content. Which is a beautiful we're, we're magazine. Working on a regular basis with with stories that can be told about our design community and about the people making products in our space. We're spending a lot of time looking at and coaching others to do the same. So I, I think it's an easy trip from where we are today to where we need to go. The challenge that I have a little bit is that we need we need the industry to embrace it. Mm. And certainly, you know, things like Design Leadership Network or some of these other things where they're they're creating these experiences for designers and right. everyone's Instagramming about that yeah. is very interesting. Right. It would be great if that was more consumer focused. Mm. So you feel like it's not quite enough. Well, I think design people talking to design people is a closed network. Mm-hmm. 
And the breakthrough is when design people talk to consumers and engage consumers and have a call to action for consumers. I do really think, and and I'm a consumer of interior design and of interior design talent, but I think an industry that is held hostage to a pricing model that disconnects you from your end consumer will continue to have struggles to grow and survive. I don't think it means there's not a place for that, but my sense is that as an industry, we don't welcome the uninitiated. It's like the club that you can't find the doorbell to. Yeah. I think that's what the design industry needs to do and do more of. And, uh, and so I think it's a test and iterate. I don't think there's any one, one answer, but the consumer's alive and well. The industry is strong. I mean, yeah. you can just see what Warren Buffett did with RH and yeah. tell you that that the sky is not falling. No, no, and that's the thing. And you know, you and I have spoken in the past about the fact that often our industry behaves as if it's sort of back on its heels a little bit. Yeah. You know, and that we don't feel like we're winning or we don't right. feel like we've got a bright future ahead. I, I was encouraged by by Pierre Frey opening their own showroom in, in the Boston Design Center. Yep. And Patrick Frey often often sort of delivers that message yeah, very forcefully, right? Right. That's right. That that we need to be more more optimistic and mm-hmm. and, and excited about the future. Absolutely. And I would say the same thing about Philip Jeffries. I would say the same Absolutely. thing about Quadrill and China Seas, you know, yeah. John Knott. I think he's somebody who has led certainly a connection to a design community and a and a cultural movement of print, of printed pattern fabrics that has spoken to a lot of people for a company that's as small as it is. Mm. You know, it's a small company with a big reach, and and I think the same thing with Philip Jeffries. And so nice to see that, and yes. uh, and I think there'll be more of that. I think there's a lot of startups in the fabric and home furnishing space as well, which is super so exciting. E- exactly, and that in in a way it it gets me back to this rent discussion. I was watching a little bit of a, of a panel that you were on not too long ago. It was at Google where, where you were talking about some, some different models. You, you, you pointed to a, a company in London that sort of specializes in these relatively short-term right. leases. One yeah, or two value years retail out of exactly. London. Really, value you know, retail. Scott Malkin, really talented group of people and doing amazing things with only two-year leases, really bringing people in to connect to a consumer and keeping it fresh and rotating it. Yeah. So is that something that could work in, yeah, in the Boston Design Center? Yeah, and it does work. I mean, we do short-term in our stalls program, in our pop-up program. We're happy to engage at any level with good product and good creators. There's no one size fits all in our, in our model. And, and I think that's some, true with some other independent, you know, certainly what Drucker's doing in, in lower Manhattan has mm. some dynamism around that. Even First Dibs new showrooms on the West side, you know, are, are starting to kind of allow people to engage in an interesting way. It's what Stahl's Concepts did 35 years ago. Right. This yes. this ability for people to incubate an idea, goods or service or antiques or I think the more we have of that, the better. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I agree. And I and I think that bringing this vitality back to design centers and bringing, as you've often spoken about in the past, 
creating these reasons for people to to make the trip. Boston Design Center is not the most conveniently located place in town. Right. You, you, got, you got to get there. Yep. Right? Sure. You got yeah, to yeah. want to get yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, sure. You, you know? And- I'd like to say it's hiding in plain sight. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, I mean, I get it when designers make the argument, please. I mean, designers in New York who have an office on 60th Street often tell you how difficult it is to get to the D&D building exactly. down right, the street. Right. Yeah. So, I yeah, mean- totally. Yeah. So, uh, but I- the Boston Design Center, you've 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 got to want to get there. Right, you've gone out of your way to deliver great restaurant experiences yeah. and create a, a whole host and bakeries of bakeries and shuttles oh. and alternative transportation. Yes. And we have a full app program for for all the different transportation and food options and engaging the consumer. I think that that is where it's going. And perception is reality. Quite often, mm. you know, reality has no semblance to reality if you put the value of perception on. And so, you know, oftentimes things can seem very far away or very close or seem very successful or very unsuccessful. I think that in our particular instance, the dynamism of that whole ecosystem is driving a bridge between the consumer and the trade customer. And that I think is important. And I think you have other people doing similar things in other design centers around the country. Unfortunately, we have people who are not doing that in other design centers around the country. Exactly. In major design centers. That's right. And I think that's challenging. I think when you have significant vacancy, it sends the wrong message. We have dealt with that in what is clearly, if you accept the fact that in retail as a whole, and I would call design centers a form of retail, they are their own consumer Though base. Some of them would shudder at the mere but, mention but, of that. But, but they are. I, I mean, understand. They keep regular hours. You go there to shop product. You go there to transact. That's a, a very clear transactional form of retail. Yeah. And so in the industry as a whole, the square footage dedicated to this is going to get smaller. To trade businesses, you mean? And to design businesses. To design businesses in it, It's getting smaller. Retail square footage is growing. Mm. You have you know people like Design Within Reach doing stores. They used to do 3,000 foot stores. Now they do 20,000 foot stores. Restoration Hardware used to have 15. Now they have 60. So there's there clearly there's growth mm. at a certain level at the retail base. In the showroom piece, I think it's going to get smaller. And so we all have to address how to keep spaces dynamic, how to have pop-ups happening, how to reconfigure and keep the curation so your fabric floors feel robust and your your kitchen and bath floors feel interesting. And, yeah. and so what I think is missing is that some landlords are not doing that. As a byproduct, I think there's more of a sense of concern and panic when you see empty showrooms and you sort of wonder where the industry is going. No, it, it, exactly. And it and it feeds into that to that fear if you if you want to be thinking negatively about the industry, it 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 supports that. That's right. Right, that notion. And the Robert Allens of the world don't don't help. Nope. And that's a very unfortunate outcome for for those companies. Absolutely. There's an awful lot of Robert Allen space to be had up at the D&D building and and I know they recently had to close their showroom in the Boston Design Center and I think that's a perfect example of an industry of a legacy business that got too big, that didn't adjust appropriately and lost its sense of brand relevance to the consumer. I also think that more places that people, more ways people can engage helps companies as they navigate in in the new world order. Well, so tell me what you mean by that. 
Well, in fashion, you have incredible collabs, right? These collaborations, like look at what Virgil Abloh has done um, with Louis Vuitton. You know, I'm not recommending that it's about only about celebrities, but you can even say, look at Miraval and Brad Pitt. Mm. I mean, you know, Miraval became an incredible rosé because he bought it and promoted it with Angelina Jolie. We, we as a design industry mm. aren't doing enough to connect to collaborations. I don't mean a decorator decorated your house. I mean, somebody who actually has a point of view on design and is investing dollars and building a business and creating something that comes out of that. Yeah. Because in order to, uh, to touch those people, to get that consumer, you have to speak to them where they live. That's in music. It's in fashion. It's in, it's in entertainment. It's in technology and media. Those opportunities are easy lifts for the design industry. You know, you mentioned earlier about the the trade pricing model and that being certainly one of the obstacles that the that the industry either needs to get past or somehow needs to figure out how to get over. I spoke to some of your tenants when I was visiting yeah. and they are dug in and this is our they model are, and because they're is- trying to protect their margin right. and they're trying to protect something they regard as under fire. Yeah. But the reality is they're not all wholesale businesses. There's lots of margin somewhere in that system for three or four different people to make a markup on a sale. So you have the producer, you have the the brand creator, and then you have the sales force, and then you have the designer. Mm-hmm. So you have three levels of, of revenue off profit off of that margin. So if you look at something like Restoration Hardware, they have either contracted or bought the factories. They've worked with the designers on a license basis, and they've created a distribution network direct to consumer with in-house design or or using third-party design. So of course, the showrooms would be threatened by any prospect of something different. But the reality is, if you're not providing enough growth to a new consumer base, you have to pay attention to how you can get to those people. And a lot of that does come in the disintermediation of price. And if you look at, you know, the vertical brands that are doing well, either luxury brands or even what I would call fast fashion brands, Mm. you know, we can turn our nose up at Zara, but Zara is the single most successful retail business in the world, as far as I can tell. They do an incredible uh, job. In the fashion world. Yeah. 21 days from design to store the shortest time going. And I was at the most recent New York uh, decorator show house and an incredibly chic woman was wearing Dior Palazzo pants and a $69 Zara jacket. You know, she's wearing, you know, $3,800 pants with a $69 (laughs) jacket. So high and low is real. Absolutely. And people are proud to tell you of their great Zara purchase. Exactly. So why isn't the design industry paying attention to that? I've said this before, and, and people sort of shake their heads when I say this, but at least 10% of the product in most really notable big design uh, designer projects comes from mail order catalog mm-hmm. because people are getting the last bit where they can get it to finish off, whether it's throw pillows, area rugs, the lampshade, 
if we think everything is coming directly from the the design centers, we're really right. sadly mistaken. No, 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 of course not. And so more of that, the showrooms in the industry needs to be part of that. And you're mm. seeing that with Stark. You're mm. seeing that with Kravit. Mm. And I think that's what uh, some of these other folks need to be paying attention to. We're taking a quick break from the show to hear from one of our sponsors. When it comes to home technology, black plastic gadgets are out and friendly human design is in. With Google Nest, you can get a little extra help at home without sacrificing design. Nest Hub and Nest Mini are designed with soft color sand fabrics that fit right in on the side table or kitchen counter. And they're powered by the Google Assistant, so you can control your home with your voice. Just say, hey Google, good morning. And the Google Assistant can turn up the heat, turn on the lights, and tell you the latest forecast, traffic on the way to work, and even the headlines. It's a personalized briefing from an assistant that knows you best. It's a little help at home, like only Google can. And now, back to the show. Is part of the answer, you know, one of the things that actually Chad sort of made mention of, and and you talked about the showroom sort of have regular hours. They have regular Monday to Friday hours, and they're often sort of nine to five hours and much of the world but nine to five looks more like 10 45 to 4 30 because your salesperson doesn't show up and because it's flexible and because everybody's you know that piece of it is what's elastic and unfortunate you know i'd go back to one piece you know i live clo- in new york i live close to the armory on, on the Avenue. east side yeah and regularly there's incredible shows, right? Tefaf, Salon New York, you know, all these incredible shows. I come in on a Sunday night and go to go to Tefaf and it's open till 8 p.m. on Sunday and it's filled with people. As busy as we've all become, the idea that if we say that working wealth mm. and actually two parents are working, you know, the careers are important, equity and inclusion is important. If that's a real thing, and that's a growth in our consumer for the design industries, why aren't our design centers open at night? Because that's when people actually have time to yeah. go with their husband or wife yeah. or spouse, whatever it is, and sit and test the furniture and talk about the fabric and debate and fight and have the psychological time, the therapy time they need with their, with their designer. That's not what people want to do, but that's the reality of the way people are consuming. And it's why people are doing it at home at night on their computers. Yeah, That would be a real opportunity for design centers to pick a night. As we said before, even if it's something you just experiment with, right. e- even if it's something you just it try, right? Yeah. right? And, and, and see what the reaction is. But it's only going to be meaningful if there are lots of other reasons for them to come to this space. And again, I go back to what you've been able to create around the Boston Design Center. It's not just, as you've pointed out, it's not just a design center cafe. It's a wonderful restaurant. Sure. Like a George, yeah. James Beard yeah. nominated, right? I mean, <laughs> right. It's, it's, yeah. So, I mean, that's part of making it work though. And, and in the Boston Design Center, I couldn't get over how much space there was for designers to come and work. Sure. How many conference rooms there were that were available? Right. And to tables them. in and the that, middle of hallways and sofas yes, and chairs. Exactly. And yeah, absolutely. I think creating a place for people to congregate. You know, it's interesting. Last night I was with someone from Coach, and they were talking about the new Nordstroms and how amazing it was that there was a bar in the middle of the shoe department and there was a nail salon <laughs> there. And there was yes. that, that there's this experience that's happening. And I think we all need to pay attention to that, right? We all want to feel so bespoke 
luxury custom home furnishings go hand in hand with organic artisanal food preparation and vegan and healthy choices and juice bars and and all the things that and health and wellness and so we have Reebok's um, company store and their gym and cross training facility in the base of the Boston Design Center with yeah. Chickadee, the great, as you say, best new restaurant in Boston. And, yeah. you know, also Flower Bake- Bakery with Joanne Chan, who's an incredible baker. That sense of collaboration. And I go back to this, that cross pollination is what it's all about. You know, we have Continuum, the design company, industrial design company who designed the Herman Miller healthcare furniture using Autodesk, whose maker's lab is there at the Boston Design Center to prototype. And it's sold in the Boston Design Center. It's concept to distribution in one place. And the more we create those nonlinear connections that are B2B and B2C, Mm -hmm. the more the design center and design industry will flourish. I hope so. And the challenge is people don't know that all of this amazing product exists. People don't know that Clarence House Fabric is there to be had. If you only knew about it, you you would want it. You would insist upon having access to it is, I guess, my point. And how do we empower these companies to to go after these consumers and and get them excited? But why isn't Clarence House Fabric at Mitchell Gold? You know, I mean, it's interesting when you go to the fabric show in High Point, there's all this incredible fabric and it's all imitations of (laughs) the great fabrics. Right. But why isn't there collaboration with a with a line with a retail furniture? Why doesn't, you know, Serena and Lily have a collaboration with. Mm you know, Schumacher or with uh, Quadrille. I mean, they're mm. incredible opportunities. Now, one could say that there's a, the reason why is because that somehow undermines a customer base. But on the other hand, we all want to shop different price points. You know, there's times that I want Luther Quintana custom made beautiful pieces in my life. Yeah. And believe me, there's many times like that. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, that turns out to be most of the time. Right. right. <laughs> but, but there's also times that I just want to buy the perfect sofa for an application that, that I don't have to think too much about. Yeah. And it would be great if I could get it in four to six weeks, not 10 to 16. <laughs> <laughs> And that's part of the challenge too. Right. And 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 it's listen, we've we've done a lot to beat up the industry and and shout out the, the challenges. And, right. and and they and they know and companies are are trying to figure right. out how to cut down the lead times and and certain things I, I get it, they they can't and, right. right. But uh but like you, I don't want the industry to feel defensive. I don't want the industry to be back on its heels. I want the industry to be celebrating what is so special about what they have. And Well, I think you need more people wanting to disintermediate the industry because through that innovation comes energy and excitement. Mm. That in, in itself is, is the opportunity. Well, so tell me what you mean by that. Well, what I mean is that let's take the food space. Mm-hmm. You know, 25 years ago, most American cities were not considered to be food capitals. Now, every city, large or small, is proud about their culinary culture, about their local homegrown talent, Mm. about the products and foods that are grown locally. We didn't know what locally meant 30 years ago. So I would say that about the design industry, that innovation and disintermediation is an opportunity to evolve and young energy. It doesn't mean only young people. It means young energy 
And, and that can be, you can be 80 and have that energy, or you mm-hmm. can be, you know, 25 is essential to move an industry forward. And if people are sort of clinging to something without sort of understanding what the next thing is, that doesn't create a very fertile climate for innovation. You have to be willing to jump, jump into the water. And, yeah. and so I think that you made the, I said, test and iterate, you said, try that culture is an opportunity for everyone. And, you know, in the tech industry where I spend an inordinate amount of my time, um, the, the, the failure rate is like 90%. That's accepted. 90% failure rate. Yeah. And, and you're expected to, to try things and then move on and try other things. In the real estate industry where I spend an inordinate amount of my time, we accept like 4% failure. So the inversion between mm. those two situations is the challenge, right? You you need to be able to experiment while not undermining the bedrock of what you do. And I think that's a little bit similar to, to the way the design industry sees itself. And I'd love mm. to see more of that of that crossover. Yeah. And and more of that that willingness to, right. to, to fail. And I and I get it that as you pointed out earlier, many of these legacy brands they're they're in tough shape and we all fear what what could be a slowdown at any moment coming and, and our, our industry will get even smaller. Right. We, we we know that. But out of that will come innovation. It'll come people that don't have high overhead, people who are in lofts with bathrooms that don't work. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> that, that, exactly. That. Something we know all too well here at the Business of Home. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and so, you know, with no hot water. And so I think exactly. I, I think that sense of, of enterprise, right? Yeah. You know, that young maker who turns something into a product that the industry loves that becomes an institution. We've forgotten that that's how all this started. So often we sit with people at this table who, while they're somewhat pessimistic about the design industry per se, they're very optimistic about design mm-hmm. and designers. Amazing. Right? That's right. That's right. The yeah. whole world is impacted by and led in some way by design. And, and yes. we don't appreciate that enough. You know, I have the benefit to fly on JetBlue a lot, which everyone's always surprised. But JetBlue is an incredible He's airline. He's a man of the people, I, okay? Totally. He's flying Absolutely. JetBlue. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you just think about how they've crafted their company out of nowhere, yes. they're a discount airline doing very well, right? And so I think that there is space in the economy for all of these things, luxury, discount, middle market, it matters that design and execution and communication to your customer is successful. Exactly. And and, and that goes back to what you were saying earlier. We've just got to get better at a lot of the basics, right? right? And and being able to deliver a level of service that people are experiencing when they're staying at a luxury hotel, when they're they're traveling. People experience a level of service today that makes them have this expectation for what they're going to get in a multi-line showroom. Exactly. And I would say even like, I mean, I say this all the time, throw pillows are the easiest way to get people to interact with your product. Why doesn't every showroom have a giant bin basket wall of a hundred cash and carry throw pillows that people can walk out the door with? Why are we missing out on that business? Well, we're missing out on, it's the same thing when you see Coca-Cola products on the airline. Why do they all promote and supply their products at a good price? Because they want 
customer acquisition and customer and repeated reinforcement to the customer. So if that's a Schumacher pillow that is in you know every project because it was easy and the team from the designer grabbed six of them to throw around on that extra chair in that guest bedroom, that's more product awareness for this company in the future. And you don't really see a lot of that in the design industry, the way you do in other industries. Mm. But it's a piece of what repeatedly puts you in front of the customer. Yeah. And I think that's a that's an opportunity. Yeah. No, I I think that there's I think that there's a lot of opportunities. You're very positive about it, right? I, no, totally. I, okay. Absolutely. I okay. think, you know, I think if you just look at the demographics, we are a population globally that's growing. Cities are becoming more dense. There's no reason to think that this industry shouldn't thrive for many, many years and shouldn't grow. And I think we can, as we've already touched, you can look at the at the growth of better home furnishings, retailers, and catalogs and be and be given the evidence that it is growing. And that the consumer is hungry for it. Exactly. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, I really, thank you. I this really was appreciate a pleasure. it. This, this was such a pleasure for me as well. Uh, my guest has been Michael Phillips, the president of Jamestown. Thank you again for listening. If you're enjoying these conversations, I hope you'll consider sharing the podcast with a friend or heading over to the iTunes store to leave us a review. It helps others to discover our show. We love your feedback. Please send us your thoughts at podcast at businessofhome.com. Our show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Lauren Pirelli and edited by Nina Pollock. I'm Dennis Scully. We'll see you next week.